Mr. Frank Krueger, how's your snow day? Ooh, I'm having fun. How about you? Uh, I, I have not gone sledding, but I have gone droning. I think that's been good. What about you? So luckily for me, I work from home on Mondays, which is the day that we record. And the day that I woke up and there were police officers on all of our hills, <laughs> shutting down our hills. Don't go do this. Now, I will say this. Uh, it's pretty nice outside. It snowed, what, half an inch, maybe? Accumulative? Yeah. It actually wasn't much snow, but we did get the lucky um, slushy rain snow last night. So we have a nice layer of ice below everything. And so the snow is actually sticking around. Usually here it snows for a day and then melts that night. But now it's yep. sticking around. Yeah, it's it's around. It's hanging out. And in fact, as soon as any snow falls, no one in the city knows how to do anything. And they drive their cars on. Silly, really steep hills, <laughs> going off the road, banging into cars. It's ridiculous. So I didn't do anything. I got to stay inside. We did go out and eat some sushi, and it was very cold. But mm -hmm. I did one of the most Midwestern things that's probably ever been done. And I want to tell mm -hmm. you a quick story because this is okay. great. And it really, it really encompasses Seattle. Let me guess. It's going to okay. involve electric heated socks. No, 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 no. Okay. This, this is... This is a uh, an act of kindness, Frank, because here's what happened. Oh. We're walking down the street, and we have hills all around us. So Seattle is just yeah. built on hills. There's hills everywhere. Everywhere you look, there's a hill. So the one thing that you probably shouldn't do when there's icy, snowy roads is attempt to go from a flat road just randomly up a steep hill for no reason, especially in a or car. Or leave your home at all, but especially don't go up the hill. Correct. Yeah, don't do that. So we're walking down the road, Heather and I. And we look up and there's a bunch of people stopped on the sidewalk and they're looking up and this car has gone, decided to try to go up the hill and has now oh, gone geez. off the road and has one wheel in the ditch area. And I oh go, oh no. And I'm looking and then the Seattle lights go, yeah, we're thinking like, should we, should we help them? Like, should we go <laughs> be an assistant? I'm like, I'm gonna go help them. So I run up the hill. I was like, excuse mm -hmm. me, sir. It looks as if you need some help. So <laughs> I go and I start pushing and he can't back up because there's a car relatively behind him. And I'm fearful that he will run his car yeah. into the other car because it's all slippery. Yeah. Yeah. So front wheel drive or rear wheel? It was a front wheel drive. All right. You got a I fighting think. chance. So but his front wheel was the one that was in the ditch and... So pro tip, sometimes the ditch can provide traction. If you are on a slippery road, sometimes what you do is you put one of the wheels over the curb onto the grassy part where you can actually get some traction. Uh, may not work in this scenario. I don't know exactly what your constraints were, but little pro tip. So the constraint here was that one wheel was in the sort of ditch area and the other one was not. And he had revved it so much that he had dug himself into the ditch even deeper the front oh, wheel. You're going to need some shoveling <laughs> or some lifting. <laughs> so he couldn't go forward. And I kept trying to push and we were getting closer. And the a gentleman then is walking down the hill now. And in classic Seattle form goes, hey, bro, like you're probably going to get run over. You should be careful. And then continues to walk <laughs> on providing no assistance. So we got this, I got this gentleman out. We were able to back up very, very slowly with his e-brake and get him out. It happened, but it was a wow. classic Seattle moment. Congratulations. Good yeah. job, James. I'm going to give you all your props. I know you wanted them. So good, good job. Awesome work. Bravo. It was, it was a feel good moment, but it also 
reminded me of something, Frank, and that something is trying to bring in native C, C++ code <laughs> into my projects. And it was the same predicament because you think it's a good idea. You look at that hill and you're like, hmm, that's a good idea. What if I just take this code and, you know, and I go up <laughs> it and I start putting it in my project and then you start to go into a ditch into a spiral, if you will. And now you can't back out. You've gone too far. And that's what bringing native code into my apps reminds me of. Was that a good analogy? What? A segue, people. Oh, my God. I'm still just reeling from it. I'm still wrapping my head around it. Yeah. um, Totes. So we're going to talk about native code. And yeah, I'm I'm still working through this analogy. So is the code like a four-wheel drive? And I want to get it up the hill, and the hill is quality and features okay i'm just gonna stop i don't i don't know the, me- the metaphor is killing me now um but yeah I- i've been working on this lately uh there was this bit of native uh c code that did a lot of math and i could have rewritten it in c sharp and there were c sharp versions but they were so much slower compared to the c version that i'm just like i'm i'm a mature smart computer science person i can link a library into my app how hard could it be i did 15 years of c plus i can link things <laughs> and, but i guess that's when i got stuck on the hill <laughs> that and you went in a little just a little bit off and that was that was the issue there so for me i come from a big background of c c plus plus that's really where i got started on visual visual studio 6 uh, that was mm-hmm. my my favorite, one of my favorite IDEs. I wrote a lot of C, C++ code and I just opened some up the other day and I was like, wow, boom, check it out. Like, check out all this code. It just works. A lot of game logics. I was able to um, just automatically run the application via command line. And I was looked at the code and I go, oh, this doesn't look like much fun. But at the same time, when you think about cross-platform, C and C++ happen to be like the most cross-platform languages in the world, literally because almost anything can run C++. So I could imagine that in your deep down geekiness of machine learning, AI, and math equations, you probably have tons of C++ code just lying around, Frank. Oh, yeah, just too much. And what you said is absolutely right. C and C++, um, I... (laughs) Mostly C is like the great standard for cross-platform. I wish the truth was it was C Sharp and .NET, but the real truthy truth is C code. If you want something to work everywhere without question, write it in C, and you know there's a way you can get it onto that device, almost guaranteed. That said, James, C is also the worst in cross-platform binaries. <laughs> so mm-hmm. uh, going back to the Win32 Visual C++ 6 days, that, that's still my favorite environment too. Um, we had .lib files. And these were um, your kind of statically compiled hunks of code. So you would get a new library. It would have a header file and a .lib file. And then we got fancy. Sometimes people are fancy and they give you a DLL. <laughs> ooh, ooh. Yeah. Ooh. Get a warm, fuzzy feeling. Ooh, DLL. Yeah. I got a DLL. This won't cause any problems. I never quite got good at using DLL. So I'm always like, how do you convert a DLL to a lib? Because libs were easy. You know, you just add them to the linker settings. You're just like, I need this library. Put it in the linker command line. Bam, you have the library. DLL was like dynamic loading and crazy, scary stuff and calm and all that. But whatever. Libs. Good times. 
So I guess what was your case for this math like library? What form did you get it in? And were you using it then in a mobile application or were you just bringing it into desktop? Oh, we're going mobile, baby. <laughs> this is okay. for iCircuit. <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. So it must have been really simple. You take this C, C++ library, and then you just like drag and drop it into Visual Studio. It just magically creates all the C-sharp header files. You don't have to worry about garbage collection or memory management or anything. That That's the world we live in. Is that true? Is that how it works? Yeah. Do you do you live in that world? Okay, geez, God, because I did not do that. And my... <laughs> My experience was a little different. <laughs> when, when when people may have come into this podcast and they're thinking native libraries, and we talk, talk about mobile all the time, when you were first talking about this topic, I was like, oh, he's bringing in like an Objective-C or Swift or Java library, and he's obviously writing bindings, and he's written some magical tool that automatically figures <laughs> out everything for you, and it nougats it up and does everything. And then you're like, no, no, James, C, C++. And I go... Okay, well, I just literally recorded a video on the Xamarin show about this. And even I got lost having someone explain it to me because I've written the C, C++ when I used to write games for the mm -hmm. Xbox. That was all C, C++. And when I learned C Sharp, I was like, I never want to do this again. But I'll tell you this much. I have developers come to me all the time wanting to do exactly what you just did because it is that sort of cross-platform legacy code. They have these libs, these DLLs, or just the raw C++ sitting around. And one thing that was really interesting to me is that, well, how do you take that and put it on like a non-traditionally Windows environment coming from as a Windows developer? I'm like, well, I'll just mm -hmm. take that C++ slap it in this app and get it get it to go and maybe marshal some things and you know do some p invoking i'm used to that world i did that all the, all the time in winforms way back in the day but then i started thinking ios and android there's ndk i have no idea how ios really handles that i've seen some samples but i've never gone through the you know kind of the process myself and then even to create an abstraction on top of that it seems as if i probably want to take it to the next level too. So maybe we start at the beginning, Frank. I just mm -hmm. laid down everything like oh I normally Lord. do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so what did you have? Where did you want to go? And how did you get there? Ooh, yeah. So I started with a hunk of C code. Yeah, it was all C. There was a little bit of Fortran, but I'm like I'm praying to God that I can ignore the Fortran code. And uh, the first thing that happens whenever you find a C library that you should ask yourself is, can I compile this? Because I have found so yeah. many times I've downloaded libraries and they just don't even compile like just flat out on a Mac, you know, without doing any work, like just does it work? And so I guess that's always like my first question. And I'm always so happy when I find a library that just compiles and doesn't have 8 million dependencies and things like <laughs> that, right? <laughs> Mm -hmm. The only thing worse than C is C that depends on other C libraries. <laughs> well, you have the standard lib, correct? And then sure, you always have that, but other that, that's things. pretty much everywhere. So you don't have to worry about that yeah. one. Yeah. It's the other thing. It's like boost. Oh my God. If they pull in boost, you're just like, nope, I give up. <laughs> oh, I love me some boost. I totally wrote a, bu a bunch of boost code back in my day in, in college. Yeah. Uh, which is pretty great. Boost.org. We'll put that in the show notes for everyone right. that just wants to relive their Boost C++ <laughs> days. So at this point, um, you get a compiling. And in my case, I was like, well, what's this thing actually outputting? <laughs> so I go look around in the project because, my God, everyone's build system is different. And you go and try to find some, well, I'm on Mac. 
So I'm looking for um, either a .a file, a static archive, or a .dylib, .dylib, and that's a dynamic library. You can think of that as, uh, from the Windows world as your .lib file is your .a file, your static library, and your .dll is your .dylib. Mm. You know yeah, the- and the .dylibs you can bring into into Xcode or into Visual Studio for Mac, I'm pretty sure. I'm trying to think of how I, when I used to use Embedinator stuff, that sort yeah. of created the Dilib or Dilibs were before dot .frameworks for iOS specifically. Does that Well, sound it, it's complicated. This is where the Mac iOS split happens and then they kind of joined up again. So on Mac, uh, you tended to do everything with a Dilib because the idea was, you know, if it can be a separate library, keep it in a separate library. Don't Dy- uh, don't statically link it just like we do in dot net mm-hmm. you know dynamic mm-hmm. what the heck might as well be yeah yeah <laughs> um but on the um mono side I've, i was always questioning whether um it, it could support it or not and I, I wasn't sure because on ios i always did uh dot a files static archives because on ios we statically link everything and so I, I actually had more experience on the uh, .a side. <laughs> it seems so weird, right? It's just code, but like you're you're comfortable with one form of it over another. Do you ever feel that way? Oh, absolutely. Uh, there's definitely points in time where I'm much more likely to even start a project based on just the the, the solution format or the CS proj format yeah. or however that library is coming in. Uh, you know, it, honestly, also the other point is just looking at those, you were talking about the dependencies. I feel much more comfortable based on even looking at a package or a library and looking at those dependencies. Sometimes that, that deters me or like I'm all in based on just that alone. Yeah. So the good news though, is, um, we have .NET Core and mm-hmm. .NET Core is really good at understanding dilibs. So the moment you get a dilib, or if you're on Windows, a DLL, uh, I, I personally just started writing my binding to it. And I literally just did .NET new uh, net standard project because I knew that I was just going to be p-invoking to a library and you're actually allowed to put p-invokes into a .NET standard library. So I was just like, eh, mm-hmm. whatever, I'll do it. <laughs> and so I just started up a, a new library, started up a new test project, and uh, just started creating your standard, you know, uh, I disposable objects with handles, you know, your the standard manual way you always wrap um, C sharp objects around a C library, especially a C library that's really an object oriented library, just but it's in a C library form where you have multiple handles to multiple objects, and they all need to be freed in a different way, this and that. Uh, yeah, so I just started writing the binding basically from scratch. I love p-invoke. One of the reasons I love C-sharp is like how easy it is actually to just talk to C. And so I don't mind writing p-invokes. I actually really enjoy controlling the exact interface. That's uh, maybe the title for this week's episode. I love p-invoke because that's (laughs) what everyone says. And obviously now you have a few things that you just literally talked about. You're manually mapping the p-invokes in. You probably have externs, you have memory management. Now, did you go down a route of using these new fancy helper methods like the safe handles that are built into .NET and .NET standard? Did you why, use all why those did, Why things? no, James? I did not. Mostly 
or entirely because I didn't know they existed. <laughs> I did oh. know, I do know about safe handles because I've run into these mostly on Windows libraries that wrapped um, Win32 APIs. I've seen safe handles a lot. But on um, iOS, we don't use safe handles because the iOS bindings are machine generated and it just takes care of all the nastiness. So there's no need for code sharing or anything like that. Uh, and so I'm just not used to it. And then you tell me about this wonderful new uh, Microsoft Docs article out there with all these new classes I need to familiarize myself with. So why don't you tell me, James, about what's new in Safe Handles? Well, yes, of course. So when you think of Safe Handles, I start to think of what you said is I want to be able to get access to my um, int pointer and I want it to be able to release my handles, get my handles, release my handles easily. So when I work with unmanaged resources in managed code, that's sort of what it's there for. And you can do this, but there's all of this boilerplate code, these iDisposable, different patterns, all the stuff you have to have to write. Now, the interesting part is that there is a part of safe handle called safe handle zero or minus one is invalid. <laughs> That's the whole class name, everyone. I, I want to pause just to make that clear. James, would you repeat that class name? <laughs> yes. Not only is there a security permission of inherent demand, inheritance demand, unmanaged code, and a demand for unmanaged code, that this name of the class is called safe handle zero or minus one is invalid. That is the name. Frank. It's such a lovely name. I mean, it's descriptive. You have to give it that. It's like naming someone monkey that also talks it's a, it's a descriptive name <laughs> yes it is. And do you know what it does it provides a base class for win32 safe handle implementations in which the value of either zero or negative one indicates an invalid handle it's literally in the name frank it's right in the name you get what's on the tin uh, and should make it clear, um, Win32 safe handles is a little misnomer. This works with any kind of unmanaged library where you're basically getting a pointer to a struct and you need to be able mm -hmm. to free it at some point. Uh, they just call them Win32 safe handles because history, we don't want to rename everything. <laughs> uh, so yeah. these are super cool. But I do want to give a little shout out to the Roslyn... Um, what do they call these refactorings, whatever code generators, little analyzers, analyzer. Yeah. The little light bulb thing that shows up. Mm -hmm. If you uh, say that you want to implement iDisposable, hit that puppy and it'll say, do you want to implement this using the dispose pattern? And it actually injects tons of code, <laughs> like you said. And, but the neat thing is uh, it's full of comments and they really walk you through um, what to do and which part of the code to release your objects correctly. And I really appreciate that. It's one of the really nice uh, code generators built right into pretty much all the IDEs now. Yeah. And in fact, when you're creating this, you still have to worry about a little bit of the disposable pattern, things that you want to hang on to. But it makes it nice because when you create this safe handle, you can say that, hey, I am going to own, this is going to own this handle. And there's an override of just releasing the handle. So you can close out the handle easily to kind of get rid of everything. It's, it's very, very nice. So it just takes care of a lot of that boilerplate code. And guess what? Roslyn's going to help us with everything else, but I'm not hundred percent sure if it's going to help us bring into your iOS or Android app. But Frank, before we get there, let's thank our sponsor this week, our good friends over at Instabug, because when you're creating applications, 
things get tricky and you're going to want feedback from your users to help you debug, fix, and prioritize your product backlog. With Instabug, you can do that and you'll be 10 times faster. Now, what's great here about Instabug is it is a cross-platform SDK that you can install into your mobile apps and get started in minutes. It allows you to not do not only do normal bug reporting, but also get user feedback. This is the coolest part. You can simply just come in, add the SDK, and instantly your users will be able to shake their phone and send feedback where alternatively they would have had to gone to the app store. Now, this feedback mechanism via Instabug not only is just a quick typing, it gives you things such as um, the user steps, screenshot, network logs, UI view hierarchy, device details, and a bunch more, including if it's a crash, all that crash report goodness. So this allows you to not only get feedback from your users, but help fix their bugs and make a better experience. Now, what's great here is that it can also integrate into your third-party tools like Jira, Slack, Trello, GitHub, and more than 20,000 companies around the world are relying on Instabug, including Lyft, eBay, PayPal, and more. Now, what's great here is that you can get started, and they have a special offer for all of our listeners. When you go to instabug.com slash merge, sign up, install the SDK, they will send you a free t-shirt. So head over to instabug.com slash merge to learn more. And thanks to Instabug for sponsoring this week's pod. Woo, thank you, Instabug. I'm getting pretty good at these 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 long reads of the... Of the adverts. <laughs> yeah. It is fun because I get to learn about, I get to learn about these awesome products, get to use these awesome products and learn more. So, yeah. all right. So you got your safe handles. Yeah. That you wrote manually yourself. You're good to go. Sure. Sure. Why not? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I have a unit test library because, you know, I'm not like building a UI or anything yet. So I just want to prove to myself that I can get this stupid library working <laughs> in .NET basically. And so I have a unit test library. So what's the next step, James? You got to put it into a really real app. Uh Uh-oh. Yeah. Okay. And now things get scary because now we have to, not only do we have the uh, dynamic library, static library split to think about and deal with, but now we have architectures. Oh, my God. Um, All things get crazy here. So .NET Core runs 64-bit on Mac. Great. Wonderful. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So first, I move my test into Visual Studio for Mac and run it. And all of a sudden, it's like, cannot find your Dilib. And I'm like, oh, no, I just had it (laughs) over there. So I copied my Dilib into like every directory. I'm like, find it, find it. It's there. (laughs) And it kept saying, cannot find Dilib. And I'm like, what the heck? Um, So you know who you know who had a blog post that fixed this at Sushi? Oh, of course. Yep. So it turns out on Mac and maybe other places, if Mono can't find your architecture in a library, it just says it can't find the library. Mm -hmm. It's a little bit of a misnomer in the error. So what I learned was uh, Mono, unfortunately, still runs by default as 32-bit on the Mac. And so it was looking for a 32-bit version of the library. So now I have to go back to that... um, C code that I was so proud that I got building at all and somehow convince it to output a 32-bit version. And oh my God, James, this is where terribleness occurs. Well, and I guess over in the world of over the world of iOS, if you still wanted to support 32-bit, you need that 32-bit. I mean, do you have to? I guess aren't you aren't you forced on iOS to only do 64-bit now or no? Or am I wrong? 
It's funny on iOS, new apps are only 64-bit. But if you have uh, an old, let me rephrase that. If you have an app supporting old operating systems, um, then you can uh, still upload 32-bit apps. Now, Mac is 64-bit only. And with Xcode 10, they've gotten very aggressive about it. Xcode 10 won't even compile a 32-bit library. Oh, no. Can you believe that? Oh, no. Yeah. That's not good. So... On iOS, you're fine. You can still compile 32-bit, 64-bit. It's cool. Um, But on Mac, I had to go download Xcode 9.4. That's the official recommendation from Apple. If you still need to compile 32-bit stuff, go do that. So we really got to get all 32-bits gone (laughs) on the Mac. That's a little bit annoying. Well, well, it's interesting in the world of Android, too, and this may kind of tie in, is that there are like four architectures. There's ARM 64 VA, ARM V7A, x86, and x86 64-bit. So there's even more complexity in the world of Android if you want to or need to support all those architectures in your SO file. There are five architectures on iOS. Uh, yeah. Uh, and if, if you start including the simulator, you have, yeah, x86, x64, the three ARMs, and then there's two 64-bit ARMs, ARM64 and ARM64E. I have no idea what the difference is, but they're there. <laughs> so I think there's a x86 yeah. underscore 64 for the simulator mm-hmm. because even the simulators can run in 64-bit mode. So here I am. I need to generate something like seven architectures, and that's just for Mac and iOS, not including, as you said, Android, not including Windows. So I'm like, oh, Lord, what am I getting myself into? But the first decision I made was, and I've done this in the past before and had good success, so I I, I usually do this. I throw away the build system that came with the library, (laughs) and Mm. I just go into Xcode, and I say, file new project, and I just drag all the C and header files into the project because in Xcode, it's designed for multiple targets, multiple architectures, multiple everything. It's just a good C++ IDE. If I was in Windows land, obviously, I would be doing the same thing, but with Visual Studio. Um, But Xcode actually makes it, I don't want to call it easy, but they make it tolerable (laughs) to generate. a dilib for Mac that includes two architectures and um, a static .a file for iOS that includes what five architectures or whatever that's that stupid thing needs. Uh, I do yeah. uh, one more quick shout out though. Um, new versions of iOS can actually load dilibs now, so you don't actually need to fully statically link your app. Everything still needs to be signed, so you can't just download dilibs and pull them in. But you can actually do that. The trick is, I don't remember what version of iOS supports it. And iCircuit goes back to iOS like negative 12. So I don't bother. (laughs) Yeah, it seems to be as if this is your conundrum. Is not only you're supporting Mac, but now you're supporting iOS and you're supporting all old flavors. You're not just file new. You know, that would have been a lot easier. Uh, I will give a shout out to the C++ team at Microsoft, though. I'm pretty sure it's still around. I need to check VS 2019, but in Visual Studio, at least I know 2017, when you had the C++ tools installed, you could do file new Android C++ library. Nice. As long as you had the NDK installed. Yes. You could add all of your C++ files right there inside of Visual Studio, and it would compile any everything 
and it would dump out all of your SO files for your architecture. And on top of that, Frank, you could just add that as a reference into your Xamarin C Sharp projects, and you could even debug into the C++ code or whatever, or some craziness. I don't know what they did. God, I but hope, some magical I, I hope you're right. I hope that thing still exists because I'm going to rely on that heavily. I, I have not tackled the Android side of this yet, and I am not looking forward to it. What I actually did was create an abstraction layer so I can keep using the old code on Android because I was so afraid of the problem. <laughs> so I can use the mm-hmm. new code on iOS, but yeah, fall back to the old stuff for Android that already I, that I already know works, which I guess I should have mentioned. That's an important piece. <laughs> but yeah, now yeah, that's gosh, the tricky part. So now you're managing um, libraries for every platform right so ios is a library mac is a library android is a library windows is a library and within those libraries you have many architectures and each one of those needs to be compiled and for me it's probably going to be a different ide and project file my goal obviously is to get this all under um version control uh, not version it's under version control um under ci <laughs> But Mm -hmm. the truth of the matter is I'm literally checking in binaries into my code right now because it's so hard to build these things. I am keeping the source code too, but the actual build process is actually still manual right now. Like Xcode will not build me a fat library. I have to generate multiple libraries and then use this wonderful app on the Mac called Lipo, (laughs) L-I-P-O, and Lipo merges libraries. So I manually compile a bunch of archives and then Lipo them together. Fun. I have seen Lipo before. The the, the crazy part is coming from the Xamarin background, I, I know about all of these things, even though I never wanted to because of how things work in the compilation, you know, about LLVM, you know, about Lipo, and you know, about all these crazy, like weird command line toggles yeah. and, and smart linking. And you're like, I don't want to know about all this stuff, but I guess I have to. Yeah. I resist so much, you know, I, I should preface all of this, um, I, I really had to prove to myself that this library was even worth it. So before I even went to the Mac, I started writing um, a performance test suite. So I had my unit test to prove to myself I got the library to work. But I also wrote a, um, oh, what's it called? Um, something.net, benchmark.net. I wrote a little mm-hmm. benchmark.net thing, which is a fun little library. It's a little slow, but it's nice. It gives you good numbers. Um and I did a million tests uh, to see if this library actually did perform uh, uh, better than what I was currently using. And I had to run that test on the Mac, you know, prove that it's faster on a Mac. I had to run the test on iOS, prove that it's faster on iOS. <laughs> so it was a lot of work because I understood the um, burden, basically, I was taking on of dealing with this annoying <laughs> native library. And um, I didn't want to take on that burden unless I had hard evidence that it was worth it. Yeah, it's a good point that you bring up when we think about even even when I talk about bringing not only just C++, but bringing in those dynamic, not dynamic libraries, but the native libraries of Swift or Java or Kotlin libraries into you know Xamarin apps, for instance, there's that part of it. I used to, in my mind, I was like, I don't want to deal with the binding layer. I'm just going to rewrite it in C Sharp because yeah. all the APIs are available in C Sharp. I think it'll just be easier and maybe shorter to bind. But then I have another layer 
right? I have a layer, two layers to maintain. I have the underlying layer and then the wrapper layer that I need to maintain. And the same thing true in C, C++. If you're maintaining the C, C++ code, and then you have to maintain the wrapper and probably actually, now you're maintaining the architecture wrapper and then the C sharp wrapper. So you're really maintaining a lot of things here. And if you put an abstraction on top of that, then boom, you know, that is a lot of work. Now, if you're in a big enterprise where you're like, I've had the C++ library for, I don't know, 25 years. Oh, yeah. And uh, it's never changed. And you just wanted to work on iOS and Android, then go through a little work and this will work for you without a doubt, because like we're saying, it can run that code. And of course, .NET Core and any of the other things. And that's sort of the beautiful outcome that you could get from it. But there is all of these considerations that you have to put in place first. Oh boy, yeah. Um, definitely, if you're inheriting a code base and you just want to wrap over a bunch of C++ code so that you can start writing things in C Sharp, that is a win-win-win effort. <laughs> like, there is nothing wrong with that. Mm -hmm. It's worth every bit. Here, I'm replacing a bit of code, so it's a more of a gamble, and I'm deciding if I want to take on the burden like that. But that's a whole different scenario in the enterprise. Just do it. It's worth it. Get yourself out of that world. Because, I mean, all of this just makes you appreciate IL um, assemblies. Because we don't have eight different, well, sometimes we do, but normally we don't have eight different versions of a library for every platform and fat libraries and all that. The only time we do is when they're wrapping a native library. The rest of the time, it's just a stupid little .NET standard DLL full of IL that can be compiled onto any platform. It's a much better architecture. Uh, and so when I actually first started doing this, I heavily considered rewriting it into C Sharp. That's usually my number one go-to. Anytime I see C code or code in any other language, I'm like, how hard would this be to translate to C sharp? And um, I think now I'm realizing how long of a topic this is because we, we're, we're running late, but uh, people are probably screaming at us to mention managed C++, which is the um, mm. Visual Studio kind of answer somewhat to this, but mostly just on the Windows platform. I have tried using the Visual C++ compiler to take a chunk of C code and turn it into a beautiful managed DLL for me with no native dependencies or anything like that. Uh, the default mode of managed C++ does not do that. It has tons of native dependencies. It's not a clean, happy little assembly. You can't make a .NET standard version of it. But there is a way to force the C++ compiler into this managed only mode. And in that mode, it is really just trying to output IL, no native dependencies. Problem is, it still has some native dependencies. <laughs> and it generates, quite simply, terrible code with not a great uh, interface or anything like that. It's not as clean as you would like from a C++ code base. Um, so because of that, I've never actually used it. Every time I've tried, I've always just been kind of disappointed in the results and given up. How about you? Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, the whole world is, is very complicated, but then worth it at the end. And I've talked to some developers such as Morton from Esri ArcGIS, and he was showing me how they write their entire C sharp Xamarin UWP projects, but all this mapping, he's like, this is all C C plus plus a hundred percent, no matter what. 
And we have this one project, we have all the heads and CI just does everything for us. You know, it generates all the the invoking the DL imports, wow, cool. it creates the entire interface, creates the abstraction on top of it. I'm like, I don't know what magic you have going on, but I want you to open source that for the world. But I can guarantee mm-hmm. that, you know, that took a lot of work for them to get it. But at the end of the day, it's like, yeah, just write some more C++ and it just works and updates really quick on the CI server. And that's probably the world that you want to get to, Frank, at some point. <laughs> but we may have to come back and see on your C++ CI journey how that goes because i think you're right probably the xcode part of it may be relatively tricky for you it, it, it's not just the x it, it's merging the platforms because the ci i use is a mac based ci so i can't use um visual studio so getting like a super perfect ci i think is kind of out of the question i'd have to merge multiple services together and i hate doing that i'm afraid of those things uh, so I'm going to stick with checking binaries into source code because, ha, take that world. I don't care. I just need to move <laughs> on with my life. <laughs> and they're small. You know what I realized was this library, all this effort, even the fat version, um, like by itself, it's 100 kilobytes. And I'm like, my icon is 1.6 megabytes. And that's checked into source code. So I'm not going to sweat this 130K. <laughs> There you go. That's not too bad. Well, thank you for taking me and our listeners on an adventure down C++ world. It's always good to remember where we started, at least where I started. Mm-hmm. Um, the native Well, land. I mean, Turbo Pascal, I yeah. guess. I guess Turbo what Pascal. What did they call their we, static libraries? Did they have static libraries back then? They must have. Mm. I'm going to go with .lib. Everyone called it .lib back then. Turbo Pascal. They had VBXs and OCXs. Library. Remember those? Mm, I don't want to. Yep. <laughs> so many libraries out there. So many terrible binary incompatibilities just waiting to happen. <laughs> uh, well, I love it. Well, I'm glad that you love it. I'm glad that you're still fighting the good fight, Frank. So I appreciate that. It's all so, about the speed. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, we'll be back uh, next week with even more C++. No, I'm just kidding. No. We're not. We're going to we, we take never, at least no. one. Never again. Well, thanks, everyone, for tuning in. Of course, thanks to our amazing sponsor, Instabug, for sponsoring this week's pod. Now, what's really cool is we've started to get some people from the community uh, out there, some listeners in our Discord chat, which is super fun. Discord is like a a Slack slash Teams, but kind of open server. You can come, you can chat with us, which is super fun. We open it up for everyone. You can go to mergeconflict.fm slash discord and you can join the server, which is super cool. You get in, you can chat with us. We're on there all the time, which is really nice. I get notifications on my phone all the time now, which is fun and not fun <laughs> yeah. at the same time. Of, of course, you can follow the show on Twitter at mergeconflict.fm. I'm at James Montemagno. Frank is at Proclarum. And of course, you can go to mergeconflict.fm to subscribe, rate on Apple Podcasts, send us an email, all the things. That's going to do it. Uh, Till next week, this has been another Merge Conflict, and I'm James Montemagno. And I'm Frank Krueger. Thanks for listening. Peace. Peace.